0: I am uh, the oldest of three boys in my family. These are my lovely brothers. Um, as you can see, I come up last in the beard competition no matter how hard I might try. This picture was taken by Ari Jones. She shouldn't be blamed for the subjects. Um, it was a few years ago. Uh, life in a house with three boys is pretty much like you would imagine if you haven't experienced it and um, what it meant for me is that no matter who was at at fault for a given fight, especially if that fight got physical, uh, I was always gonna take the brunt of the punishment from my parents because I'm the oldest. So there was a brief period in our childhood when Will, who's uh, on your left there and is the middle, he's three years younger than me, there was a brief period when Will realized that he could wail on me with impunity because I was the older brother and if I hit him back or did anything like that, I would be the one to get in trouble. And I knew that as well, so I did my best to just sort of you know, practice restraints uh, on him but not actually hurt him. And then one day I had enough. We were playing football in the front yard. It was two below football, so nobody was supposed to be tackled. Uh, and He kept tackling me and one time he landed with his knee right on my forearm, Um, and that hurt, and uh, when we got up, he started running his mouth about uh, me being in pain, and so I punched him in the stomach, like you do. This was 1988, Uh, I was 13, I weighed about 88 pounds, Um, so there's no chance that this hurt him very much, But based on his reaction, you would have thought I reached in through his belly button and like pulled his lungs out. (laughs) And he laid on the ground screaming, I can't breathe, which, you know, over and over and over after a while of screaming, you can't breathe. You realize you're breathing because you're screaming. (laughs) Um, But uh, predictably, I got in all the trouble despite the witness of other friends telling my mom that Will provoked me and that he deserved it. Um, and I don't recall what my exact consequence for that was because what I remember about that moment, and there were, there were several moments like this in, in, in our childhood, uh, and by several, I mean several hundred, But this one stands out in my mind because uh, my mom was weeping and saying, it just breaks my heart for you boys not to love each other, which when you're 13 and 10, you know, you're like, love each other. Um, But you know, you should be each other's best friends, that kind of speech. And truly for years, I would play that scene back in my mind and roll my eyes at my mom's dramatics Uh, until of course, as happens with roughly eighty percent of the things your parents do that make you crazy, you realize that you're giving the exact same speech to your kids uh, that you've rolled your eyes at, even as an adult. From, we really want our kids to love each other with the same kind of love that we have for them. It's not going to be exactly the same because we're parent, their child, and, and they their siblings to one another. But but the essence of that familial love that we have for our kids, we want our kids to take that on and and to feel that and to express that and to live in that with one another. Um, And the truth is that today, I do love my brothers with that kind of love that my parents put in place as the bedrock for our family. They're my best friends. Uh, My my, my best men friends in the world are, are these two guys. Uh, But we had to grow into it. We weren't, weren't, uh, it didn't come easily for us at different points in growing up. And while we were immature, uh, we were hit or miss with it. And by that, I mean mostly miss and receiving those, those really heartfelt appeals from our mom to love each other. And so I say all that to say that I think what John is doing in these verses, part of what he's doing, is giving us that same kind of appeal here. He is appealing to us to grow up in the faith, to mature in the faith, and and saying, when you do, it means you, the beloved community of God, the church, will love one another with the same kind of love that God has put in place as the foundation for his family. And he says that rather explicitly. We'll get, get to that in just a minute, but let me just review for us since we've had some interruptions uh, in the series with the holidays and then uh, not being here last Sunday. So we're in this series where we're talking about the identity of the church as people who are following Jesus and biblical community for the redemption of the world and we're in the series where we're talking about community and what we've done the first two weeks of this part of the series is kind of laid a theological foundation for community. So we started by saying that community is not just God's idea. Community is God's nature. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He is three in one, and He is love. He is this community of Father, Son, and Spirit expressing love toward the other. And then uh, the kind of natural outflow of that, that that takes us to some application is that as individuals and as the collective body of Christ, we bear God's image. This is God's image. This is who He is. He is love, and we bear his image. And then two weeks ago, I kind of expanded that statement into four additional theological statements about community. Community is God's nature being the first, and then community confirms our salvation. Community is Christian faithfulness, community is the essence of the church, and community builds God's eternal kingdoms. God's eternal kingdom. So, those are kind of our theological pillars that we're building this understanding of community on. What I want to do the next couple of weeks is talk about the ethos of community, and I don't presume that you don't know what that means, but uh, just to break that down, when I say the ethos of community, this is the first definition I found, and it was exactly what I meant when I thought of this, so uh, Google read my mind in a very creepy way, but this is what... Uh, I mean by ethos, the characteristic spirit of a culture, era, or community as manifested in its beliefs and aspirations. So if we believe those things about community that we just put up, those, if we theologically hold to those beliefs, how does it manifest itself among us? What's the spirit among us that that demonstrates that we believe those things, that they're true? And so I want to talk about that in two very, very simple ways. I wanna talk about love and I wanna talk about grace as sort of defining characteristics of the community of God. This, this is the ethos. These are the things that represent uh, the, the characteristic spirit of God's people. And today, we're gonna to talk about love and then we'll move in the, in the next week or two into grace. Here's what I want to say big picture today. if if ethos means that, the characteristic spirit of a culture, era, or community, as manifested in its beliefs and aspirations, I think John says, and I want to say to us, that the characteristic spirit of the church community in general, and this church community in particular, is cross-shaped love manifest among its members. I believe that's uh, the essence of what John says about the ethos of God's people in this. this. This bigger passage of 1 John that I read mentions love, uses the word love 27 different times between verses seven and verse 21. And the, the five verses that we're gonna look particularly at tonight use the word love eight different times. John is placing love... At the center, not only of who God is, but the center of the life of God's people. Love is central to who we are and how we function as God's people. So let's look specifically tonight at verses nine through 13. Verse nine says this, this is how God's love has appeared among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we should live through him. All of us, who profess that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. If you go back a little bit uh, in, in the passages before this part of First John, you'll find John making the case that this is how you know who the true teachers are, the people who are giving you the truth from God they declare that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of God, that he's the one. Anyone who doesn't profess that is a false prophet, John says. So he's laid this foundation of, we're building on the essential truth, the basic gospel, which is that Jesus is the son of God, he's the Messiah, he's the one that the prophet said was coming to fulfill uh, th- their prophecies and to establish the kingdom of God on earth, to bring God into our space, as a human. That's what John has done up to this point. And he says, now in verse nine, all of us who profess that faith, that Jesus is the son of God, that he's the Messiah, when we make that confession, we also acknowledge this truth. Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus reveals God's love. That's what he does. He shows us what God's love is like. He shows us God's love. So what John says here, this is how God's love appeared among us. God sent his son into the world so that we can live through him. This is how God's love appeared. He sent his son. So we make the confession, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus reveals love, God's love to us. And when he says at the end of verse 9, when he says, God sent his Son into the world so that we should live through him. I think it has two meanings. I think it means both things that you might think that means when he says we should live through him, I think it means God sent his Son into the world so that we can be truly alive. God sent his Son into the world so that we should live, so that we should live through him. I think it also means so that our lives are now lived through him. Does that make sense? God sent his son both so we would have the life that is truly life, and God sent his son so that the lives that we live are now lived with him as the sinner. They are lived through him. Jesus, the nature of Jesus, which is God's love in human form, becomes the basis for how we now live as we live through him. So how does that happen? How do we live through Jesus, who is God's love incarnate? Let's go back to the text. Start back in verse 10 and 11. John says this. Love consists in this. This is what love is made of. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. Beloved, if that's how God loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. If we profess to believe in Jesus... And if we say that we're saved by God's love through Jesus, we're now part of his family. This is, this is the progression that we're getting. It's not just an individual thing that's happened to me. When I am saved, I am saved into God's family, into the community of faith. And in that community of faith, one of the defining characteristics is this deep, relentless, sacrificial love, not just for God, but for the other members of the community of faith. So, this, this points back to two of our theological foundations. Com- community confirms our salvation, by which we mean our conversion to Jesus is confirmed by our loving his people the way Jesus loves his people. And community is Christian faithfulness. Our fidelity to Jesus and to the gospel is expressed and our faithful love for this beloved community that he's created. So, we profess the gospel. As we profess the gospel, we also profess that this is, in Jesus, we see the revelation of God's love, and when that happens, we join the community that is loving each other the way that Jesus has revealed that God loves. This is the case that John is making. And note here, in verses 10 and 11, specifically in verse 11, Uh, John, uh, well, we're going to go down to verse 12 as well. John says two different things. He says both, if that's how God loves us, we ought to love one another in the same way. And he says, this is how we know we abide in him because we love one another. So he makes two different strong statements about us loving each other here in verses 11 and 12. We ought to love one another in the same way because that's how God has loved us. And if we love one another, then we know God abides in us. He echoes both both of these statements. I'm not going to skip down and read this part right this minute. We'll read one of these verses at the end. But he echoes both of these statements later in the passage. In verse 16, he says, those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them which is an echo of that phrase that you see underlined in verse 12. And then in verse 21, he says, this is the command we have from him. Anyone who loves God should love their brother or sister too, which is an echo of what you see underlined in verse 11. So just as a, before I go any further, just to kind of put down a signpost and say, you know, this map that we're building of what it looks like, what the ethic among God's people is. We'll put down this you are here marker on the map. This is the essence of where we are in John's text. Our confession of Jesus as Messiah and Lord places us within this community of people who are abiding in God, loving as Jesus loves. That's what I want us to, to believe and understand at this point. Um, and, and as we do, I want to look back at the text here. Uh, because John makes a statement that we ought to love one another in the same way. So we, we, we fundamentally, put that back on the screen, we fundamentally stand in this place. I confess Jesus as Messiah and Lord, that puts me in the community of people who are abiding in God, and by abiding in God, they love one another as Jesus loves. From that place, John says, here's how Jesus loved, and that's what's next. We ought to love one another in the same way. That phrase, in the same way, is referring to this phrase in verse 10. Love consists in this. In the same way means love with this kind of love that consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that God initiated. God loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. He initiates love, without regard to whether it's deserved or not by us. And then he sent his son to be the sacrifice for us. He loves sacrificially, selflessly, completely, with nothing held back. So when John says we ought to love one another in the same way, that's what he's referring to. That's the way that he's referring to. An initiated love by God, whether or not it's deserved, that is sacrificial, that is selfless, that is relentless. He's written the same kind of thing. If you, if you jump back to chapter three um, in verse 16, he says it this way. This is how we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we too ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's pretty plain and clear here. The model for the kind of love that God's family has for one another is the cross. This is uh, John's message about how we're supposed to love one another. When you and I uh, stand honestly before the cross, and I think this is where the power of his statement that we're supposed to love this way comes, if, if we, when we stand honestly and look at the cross and what it means for us individually, what it means for the church collectively, we see just how far God's love for us has carried him. We, I think a lot of us growing up in the church and, and living so many years, hearing the Bible stories, hearing sermons, hearing songs, hearing, reading books, we're, we're so very familiar with the language of the cross that it can start to lose its meaning for us. It can, we can hear it referred to without really having any sort of awe or being moved by it. Um, But all of us who profess to believe have at some point or another, and hopefully we do again with regularity, find ourselves in awe of the expansive and the expensive love of Jesus in the cross. And that's what John's appealing to here. He's saying, stand and look at the wonder of God's love for you in the cross, how far he went, how clear it is. That he would stop at nothing. Just like we just sang. There's no mountain that he wouldn't climb up. There's no wall that he wouldn't tear down. Coming after us. That's what the cross shows us. There's nothing he wouldn't endure. There's no suffering he wouldn't take. As God, he became a man. And not just became a man. He became a man and suffered the most painful, humiliating death possible. That ought to strike some awe in us at one time or another. And John says, quite plainly, love consists in this. This is what love is made of. This is the definition of love. God taking on flesh and suffering that death on our behalf. So when we consider that, I think it's impossible unless our hearts are just completely hardened. And and John even says this in such a way uh, to suggest that it's impossible unless we haven't known God at all. It's impossible not to imagine the power and the possibilities that are contained within that kind of love. That kind of love has power. It has changed us. It's, it's the reason all of us are sitting in this room. And so it's impossible not to imagine the power within a love that would compel the God of all creation to endure the cross. And that's what John is pointing us back to. He's saying here, imagine the power of the love of God revealed in the cross. Now, understand that you are meant not only to receive that kind of love, but to embody it in your love, not just for God, but for one another. That's what you're made for. And he says quite, blunt, quite bluntly, Love one another in the same way. This feels impossible to us, but this is the call. In the same way that God has loved us in Jesus through the cross. That's how you should be loving each other. In case there's any doubt that he really means this, that um, it's easy to kind of come across this kind of language, which feels impossible to us. I'll just acknowledge that and we'll come back to it. It feels impossible to us to say, I'm gonna love like Jesus loved at the cross, so what we tend to do, because it feels so difficult, is to think, well, this is some kind of hyperbole, and what John is really trying to say here is, hey, try really hard to love one another in, a, in an above average way. That's what God made you for. That, you may not think it in, in those terms, but that is often the kind of corners that we cut with the scriptures when we get this kind of language that we think, no way, I can't do that. That was hard for Jesus. I mean, the Bible tells us. He sweat drops of blood. He asked for the cup to pass. If he, I can't do that. And so we begin to mute the, 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 the harder edges of what the scripture says. But John tells us that this, this appearance of Christ-like love among us uh, will actually make Jesus and his love visible in our space. Okay, he's about to tell us, I'm going to break it down a little bit, but he's about to tell us that when you love each other the way that Jesus loves, that makes Jesus visible in our realm. There's no way that he means if you try really hard to love each other in an above average way, Jesus becomes visible because, oh look, above average. Good job. That must be the savior of the world. That can't be what John means. Let's, let's look at what he says. He says, nobody has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is completed in us. That's how we know that we abide in him and he abides in us because he has given us a portion of his spirit. So this is the second time that John uses this phrase, nobody has ever seen God. I wanna take you back to the first time which I think will give us some, some clearer understanding of what he means this second time. The first time he says it is in John chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Nobody has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is intimately close to the Father. He, Jesus, has brought him to light. So in the gospel, John writes, No one has ever laid eyes on God, but look, Jesus has appeared among us, God in the flesh, and brought him to light. Now we have seen The scripture tells us the exact representation. This is exactly who God is, Jesus. So in the gospel, he makes this statement that no one's ever seen God, but when Jesus appears, suddenly we have. Now, move forward after the resurrection of Christ. We have this statement in 1 John 4. Nobody has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is completed in us. There's a statement being made, it's not exactly the same. I'm not Jesus and I'm not ever going to be Jesus. But John doesn't mince words here. If we love one another, God is alive in us. And he is making himself known, known. he is making himself visible to us and to the people around us in the way that we love one another. So no one has never seen God But now, when we love like Jesus loved at the cross, God is revealed through Jesus alive in us. Now consider um, the way that these two phrases, the, the way that these two statements that John makes fit together and try to imagine that he doesn't mean what he says. He's, in, he's, in a, he's intentional, he knows that he's written this in the gospel. So when he writes it in this epistle, in this letter to the church, he's invoking the same kind of power, the same kind of uh, sense that God becomes real. Nobody's ever seen him, we can't see him, but if we love one another... He's real and he's visible. There's a kind of revealing of Jesus that's happening for the world among God's people when they love like Jesus loves. So, these are the statements he makes here. If we love one another, God abides in us. Let me go back to, if we love one another, God abides in us. We're not a substitute for God. We don't ever become God. But God is alive in us. He actually lives in us, number one. And number two, if we love one another the way that Jesus has loved us at the cross, his love is completed in us, which is a whole other layer of what he's saying about the realization of Jesus in us, among us, and through us. What God began in Jesus, part of his work of completion of it, is happening in us loving each other with a cross-shaped love. Just as Jesus unveiled God in the Gospels before a world that couldn't conceive of love incarnate, we unveil Jesus before a world that can't fathom cross-shaped love between people. It makes Jesus evident. So here, a little further down, John emphasizes I think, the tangible nature of all of this and how central it is to our identity in Jesus. This is not just a theory. Your words like ethos. You think this is all just sort of theory and philosophy. This is meant to be lived out among us in very real ways. He says, if someone says, I love God, but hates their brother or sister, that person is a liar someone who doesn't love a brother or sister whom they have seen and you have to remember in phrases like this that we've now had love defined for us so every time you see the word love he means if someone doesn't love like Jesus loved at the cross a brother or sister whom they have seen how can they love God whom they haven't seen this is the command that we have from him anyone who loves God should love their brother or sister too this This part of things uh, I I read a very simple phrasing of it by N.T. Wright that was really helpful and I think very direct. He says this, the same door that opens to let out your love to God is the door that opens to let out your love to your neighbor. If you're not doing the latter, if you're not letting out love for one another, you're not doing the former. It's as simple as, and as devastating as that. When John says, anyone who loves God should love their brother or sister too, he means the same part of you that opens up to love God has to be opening up to love other people. Or else it's not open. Something else is going on. So, to bring us back to the statement that I said I wanted to make today. This idea, the characteristic spirit of the church community is cross-shaped love manifest among its members. If you believe in Jesus, if you belong to him, you are called into this community, this beloved community, this community that's loved by God where the sacrificial love of God is active and is growing among its members. And just like with our kids, it takes maturity for us to grow into the fullness of that. It it, it doesn't happen instantly. But it's not unattainable. It's not just theory. It's not something that we're not meant to have our eyes set on. It's the kind of community that God intends to grow us into. In fact, we were created to love each other this way. God intends to make his love complete among us, John says. And unless, l- unless that sound impossible, John makes it clear, and this is sort of the salvation for those of us who are performance-based, for those of us who hear all this and think are, are, you're already making mental lists of ways that you don't love like this and ways that you've got to start loving like this and how, how far are you going to have to progress on that list before you're going to feel like you're obedient enough. For those of us that function that way, John makes it clear this is possible not because we're going to become high achievers, not because we're going to perform well as it relates to loving one another, not because we're particularly great at keeping God's rules, but because this is how we know we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us a portion of his spirit. All of this maturity is made possible, is instigated, is supported, is empowered by the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. God coming to life in us. God abiding in us individually and us nurturing that. Us nurturing this thing that John refers to over and over of I abide in him and he abides in me. That's, a, that's an active living sort of thing that we're meant to cultivate. Individually, we're meant to cultivate that sense of abiding in God and, and him being alive in us. There's also a collective part of it, that he abides in us and we together abide in him. That work of the spirit, God abiding in us, us abiding in him, his love being completed in us. It's not a a result of our work. It's a result of the spirit's work in us and us saying yes again and again and again as the spirit comes to life and tries to breathe life and abides in us. We were made for that kind of life in the community of God's people. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to your authority. We say that you know best, uh, and we acknowledge that a lot of what we read in the scriptures is, is difficult. It's hard for us to imagine these kinds of things that the prophets and the apostles write about becoming true for us. And so we rely on you. We believe that you're right. We submit ourselves to that reality that you know best. And we say we can't do it without you. And so in this particular moment in this particular season we say come and abide in us grow us up take out these things that we've held on to that keep us from experiencing the fullness of your presence from experiencing this kind of love among us where there are walls where there are wounds among us come and give healing bring us to repentance Make us people of grace and move freely among us to grow us up into this kind of love where it's evident that, oh, that's Jesus alive in him and her and him and her and her and her and him and them. Make us those people in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.